This is Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Oji Gerezian. Today I'm speaking with Rev Labridian, Vice President of Simulation and Technology at NVIDIA, where he leads gaming technology and simulation efforts. Welcome to the show, Rev. What is VR? Well, VR stands for virtual reality, obviously. What most people imagine when we say VR are these clunky headsets that you put on your face or some little receptacle you place your phone into before putting it on your face. VR is actually something that we've been experiencing throughout mankind from the very beginning. All of our perception actually happens in our brains. You're not seeing with your eyes. You're seeing the world around you interpreted through what your brain is actually doing. When we sit around and we talk to each other like we are right now, I can say a word like elephant, and you just got an image of an elephant in your brain. There's not one around here. You conjure up this image. And that's me incepting this, this image into your brain, a virtual reality that we're constructing. Here we are talking, having this conversation. We're constructing a reality amongst ourselves. These new versions of virtual reality that we're starting to see are just a more direct way to create an immersive virtual reality experience. It's not actually the end yet. We're not totally at the end of this thing. It's just one of the steps along the way. Humanity has figured out ways of creating these virtual realities, just, just communicating telling stories to each other verbally. Eventually we had books, you can write them in there. You could do recordings like the one we're making right now, movies, video games. But the end game is going to be where we can start communicating even without words, potentially. I highly recommend you look up Ken Perlin from NYU. He's one of the greats in computer graphics, where he describes what virtual reality means to him. Uh, I completely agree with what he's saying. My piece in this is construction of virtual realities and virtual worlds through simulation. That's fundamentally what we do at NVIDIA. Our core is a computer graphics company. We power uh, most of the computer graphics in the world, or at least the serious stuff. Constructing these virtual worlds so we can inject them into these virtual realities is what our currency is. And what is AR? They're actually related. So virtual reality is a new reality that you create that you're completely immersed in, but it's on, on its own. AR stands for augmented reality. Another term is mixed reality, MR. Uh, some people use that term instead. Currently, we're, we're in a reality of our own right here. We're sitting in this, in this room. Uh, talking to each other, and I'm perceiving you sitting there. Mixed realities or augmented realities are ones where I can blend in other realities into, into this world more directly. The current manifestations of this, the beginnings of AR, we're seeing through your phones. I mean, every iPhone and Android phone nowadays has something that crude thing we call AR, where you can point your phone uh, something in your environment, and it creates a digital representation of some reality mixed into it. The first one to make this popular, the first app, was the Pokemon Go. It was very cool, but still extremely crude. A few years from now, it's going to be far more compelling and far more immersive. And AI versus deep AI. These terms are very contentious. What is AI? What is intelligence? We still haven't really defined that. 
But generally speaking, when we colloquially speak about artificial intelligence today, we're talking about algorithms, computers doing things that we used to think only humans could do. We've been going through a series of these things throughout computing history. One of the first challenges that we had for, for computers that we thought only humans would be able to do was playing chess. And in the 90s, Garry Kasparov, the world champion at the time, was beat by Deep Blue. And it reshaped what we thought computers could do and what is the domain of humans. Uh, interestingly, it didn't kill chess, which is what, one of the things that people assume would happen once, once a computer wins. Turns out, we don't really care what computers can do. We mostly care what humans do. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll make a robot one day that could play basketball better than any NBA player, but that, that won't kill basketball. It won't replace it, yeah. Uh, we have people that, that run really fast, and we really care about how fast they can run, and we go measure that at the Olympics, but just because cars exist, or even horses that can run faster, it's just not, <laughs> not, not particularly interesting. What we've assumed all of these years is that there are things that only humans can do. It's something special, and so we kind of define artificial intelligence as, as the things that computers can't do, and that humans do. And we're, we're inching along over here. Occasionally we make big steps and we have computers do things that we thought would be impossible. The big one in recent history, it was around 2011 in Jeff Hinton's group at the University of Toronto. There were a few grad students. They took some of our, our processors, our GPUs that were used for gaming, and they were able to use a machine learning, a deep learning algorithm to train, to create a new algorithm to do computer vision, to do classification of images. There's a longstanding contest called ImageNet where all these computer vision experts in the world would have their algorithms compete with each other, see who could get the highest accuracy classification. Look at an image and you say, this is a dog, this is a blue bicycle. Traditionally, extremely hard problem. It's been there since the beginning of computer science. We, we wanted to solve this problem. At first, we thought that it would actually be pretty simple, and then we realized it's extremely hard. I mean, I've been, I've been coding since I was a little kid. I never believed I would see the day when a computer would be able to tell the difference between a cat and a dog properly. And this magic moment happened when these, these grad students took their gaming processors and they applied an older algorithm, but modified using the computing available to them, this extreme performance that they could get. It was a supercomputer inside their PC afforded to them by the fact that there's a large market that wants to do computer games. They took that and they, they created a new kind of algorithm where instead of them writing the algorithm directly, they trained this algorithm, they fed data into it, which was only available because the internet had existed long enough for us to have these images to begin with. And they shattered all the previous records in terms of accuracy. A few years later, these algorithms started to become superhuman. And by superhuman, I mean humans, when they look at these images, are sometimes not accurate. They don't know exactly what kind of dog is in the image. Or maybe sometimes they think it's a dog, but it's really a hyena in the dark. Humans make mistakes. But now the algorithms are superhuman. Before that moment, we believed that only humans could do that kind of classification. But that changed. That changed overnight. Now computers are actually better than us for doing that. Now, what does that mean? Is that intelligence? It's hard to say. But the trend, if you look at it, we keep figuring out new ways to make computers 
members do things that we didn't think was possible. It's happening so fast. If you extrapolate, you imagine maybe at some point we will have machines that are superhuman in a lot of the things that we consider the domain of humans. Emotions and humor, things that we call human. Or maybe not. Or maybe there'll be some other thing that we don't quite understand. What are you working on these days? I've been here for almost two decades. I really found my calling when I was around 10 or 11 years old. I saw this image in an Amiga magazine of two spheres, these balls floating above a checkerboard floor. And they looked so strange. I'd never seen anything quite quite like it. I couldn't make out whether it was drawn or it was some kind of weird photo of something. I read a little bit more and I realized that it was an algorithm that produced that image. That it wasn't actually drawn by someone, nor was it real or a pho photograph of something. And I was hooked. Uh, this image was created by Turner Witted, who invented ray tracing back in 1980. He published a seminal paper on this. Luckily, I got to work with Turner. Uh, years later, he was he was with us until he retired recently uh, at NVIDIA doing some amazing work. And I got to tell him that, that, that the reason I was there at NVIDIA working with him was because of that image. But what really excited me was that I could finally draw without having to know how to draw. I could use the tools that I'm good at, which was programming a computer to produce these images. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. Today's guest is Rev Liberidian, Vice President of Simulation and Technology at NVIDIA. He's speaking about gaming technology, robotics, and artificial intelligence. So what, what is computer graphics? What is a digital image that's been constructed? Basically, the computer's not really drawing or a drawing in the traditional sense. What, what we have the computers do is do a simulation. We have some understanding of how light works and the physics of light. And the images that you see are the products of the simulation that's happening around us in the real world. We're trying to approximate that. Light travels through space. It interacts with matter that's, that's present in all around us. It reflects, it absorbs, transmits, it refracts, it diffracts. There's, there's all of these things that happen. And so what we do with computer graphics is we try to get as close as possible to what reality is and simulate that. So those images that we're producing for a video game or for the Avengers movie, many of the people probably just went and, and saw, is fundamentally a simulation of the physics of light. When NVIDIA started, before I joined, our CEO, Jensen Wong, who's probably the smartest person I've ever met, he realized how important the computer graphics is, the simulation of light, but also realized that it's important to find a large market that could support the development, the amount of uh, R&D that goes into creating something like this. Previous to then, most of the companies doing really advanced graphics were in fairly niche areas like making movies or, or professional CAD design and stuff like that. But what we did was we took this to the masses through video games. We realized people love playing video games. What we're creating in a video game is a simulation of some world. And in this world, you have to do the simulation of light. That's the graphics that we produce, and you have to do it really fast because it has to be interactive. Uh, we do it in a 60th of a second instead of the hours it takes to produce one of the frames in the Avengers movie. We have to simulate physics. 
uh, and the interaction of objects, how they collide with each other. You have to introduce some kinds of AIs to drive the opponents or the virtual cohorts and people you have on your team. You need to collaborate with other people or uh, play against them and deal with uh, the interaction of, of people in these virtual worlds and large distances between them. They may be on the uh, other side of the globe. They have to interact with each other and make it all feel like they're present there at the moment. Video games are actually the hardest problem, if you think about it, for, for computer science, because you have to do everything in order to, to make the best experience. And one day when we have the ultimate video game experience, it'll feel no different than being in reality here. We're, we're actually going to feel like we're inside it. That's, that's the ultimate game. So what Jensen realized was that there's demand here and the fundamental technology needed to create that is one that's important for mankind in general. But you need this large market in order to, to pay for the development of this thing. There's an entertainment purpose over here that, that's large enough uh, where we can afford uh, every generation of GPUs we create. It's three, four billion dollars that, that we invest in creating that. None of the other single markets can, can support the development of that. But through video games, we get this core, and then we can have adjacent simulation for robotics, for autonomous vehicles, for design of products, for collaboration. Maybe one of these days we'll be doing an interview like this inside a virtual reality that's powered by that same gaming technology. And so my team is focused on building the tooling and the fundamental technologies at that layer to create these possibilities with these applications, whether they be video games or simulation for, for some of the things I mentioned, like robotics and autonomous vehicles. And what are some of the problems you're trying to solve? There's a whole lot of them. We still haven't solved rendering. Simulating light is really, really hard. And then doing it fast is even harder. We understand the principles of light, physics well enough so that we can do approximations. But what we have to do is simulate billions and billions of photons bouncing around in a scene and figure out which ones actually hit your sensor, whether it's your eyeball or a camera that you're modeling. And doing that extremely fast in a 60th of a second is, is hard. Even the best that we do for movies, which don't have that restriction, they can afford to have supercomputers, thousands of computers they put in a data center to calculate those final pixels that, that you end up seeing in, in the movie theater. Uh, they can spend hours and hours or sometimes even days rendering a single frame. We have to do that in a 60th of a second in real time. So the first problem that, that's on my mind always is how do I take the things that we are doing that take hours for a film and make it so that we can do it in a 60th of a second and once we can do that, then we can really approach, get close to making a virtual reality that's believable. So that if I stick you in this virtual reality, you might not actually know that you're in it. Sounds to me like from all that we're talking about is that the future is coming faster and earlier and it's forcing us to contend with our understanding. It's like a culture shift. It's like a paradigm shift for us. AI is already here. There's technology to do gene editing. There's facial recognition. There is amputees with robotic limbs, sensors on, on steering wheels for cars that if they sense that you're getting sleepy or your mood is changing, the car will start talking to you to keep you awake and engage you. These are all things that were unimaginable 
there's there's a lot of technology we're building inside the car, not just for self-driving cars, but for assisting drivers. And technologies like that, where we have cameras in there that can see if your eyelids are drooping uh, or if you're agitated and and try to try to help you it's it's remarkable to help reduce road rage perhaps (laughs) um and sebastian thrun developed machine learning algorithm to help diagnose cancer Mm -hmm. and that radiologist's role is going to change as a result of this that they're not going to be necessarily replaced but they're going to have augmentation of Mm -hmm. what you mentioned with classifying and reading of the cat scans and the mris and the x-rays and do better mm-hmm. classifying, and the radiologist will be more of the cognitive end of thinking about disease. So how do you see technology impacting our lives and humanity? Understandably, all of this technology happening so fast is scary. It's even scary for me, even though I'm, I'm in the middle of it. It's happening at a pace that mankind hasn't experienced before. So it's hard for us to just digest how fast it's happening and what the repercussions are to each of these things. So so we have to be very careful about how we integrate technology into our lives and really be thoughtful about it, not just assume that they're by default good. Technology is neutral, but the application of it isn't necessarily, right? Um, That being said, one of the biggest fears is that, that AIs are going to make people obsolete. I just don't see that. It doesn't make sense to me that, that we would feel that way. A lot of the things that we think about are like manufacturing jobs and stuff that robots can go replace. If you look at it traditionally, those jobs didn't exist to begin with, right? It's kind of weird to think that the pinnacle of mankind is is a human standing in an assembly line, toiling away hour after hour doing mundane, monotonous tasks. We were machinizing mankind, which is kind of odd. Humans are creative. They're wonderful th- creatures that are interesting. We should try to do everything possible to make it so that they can reach their potential without having to do the mundane and monotonous things. We're just discussing virtual worlds and simulating them. But one of the bigger problems, actually, with, with virtual worlds is the creation part of it. Creating a virtual world is, is extremely expensive. It takes thousands and thousands of people to, to construct a really large uh, virtual world experience. One of the most important ones in recent times is a game called Grand Theft Auto V. It was released in 2013, I believe. If I recall, they spent about seven years building this game. And they had, at some points, probably a thousand artists constructing this virtual world. And it's still extremely popular. People play it all the time. If you go search on YouTube, you'll find uh, millions of videos of people creating movies inside the Grand Theft Auto world. They take it and they modify it and they insert their own characters. They put Marvel superheroes in there. The reason why it's so popular is because it is the most accessible, the largest virtual world that you can go access that's of high quality. But it took... A thousand artists, seven years to create this. It's a micro version of Los Angeles. They call San Andreas in there. And it's great, but it's nowhere near what we really want. Something that's as rich as the real world we live in and even more, except we've reached a limit. There's only so many hundreds of millions of dollars you can put into creating these virtual worlds. So to construct them, how do we take these thousands of artists and augment them with AI tools? Not so we can put them out of business, but so that they can create not just this little micro version of Los Angeles, but they create the whole globe so that you can go walk into any building 
into any alley, into any, any basement. And it's detailed and rich and filled with all of the objects that you would expect there to be in the real world. It'd be based on maybe the real world. We can take our Google Maps data that exists, satellite data, and use AI to go augment that and build these worlds out. When we introduce these AIs, I don't believe there's going to be a single artist that goes out of business. What we're going to do is we're going to take away the monotonous task of handcrafting every single piece of geometry, every single little thing in there. And I think that's what's going to happen in general. Now, the scary part is, is when it happens fast. There's this period where you have people who have been doing something for a long time. And so sometimes they're, they're not even capable of adjusting to the new thing. So there's pain there. Uh, we need to get better at that as a society. How do we make people not dependent on one, one specific task as their, as their job or career their whole lives? People should be adaptable and creative and we should be progressing together and learning to do new things. So you believe that we're not prepared? I don't think so. I, I particularly don't think we're prepared here in the U.S. We're actually notoriously bad at, uh, at dealing with new technology. If you look at it at the, in the political landscape, I, I don't think we have uh, leaders in politics that, that truly really understand what, what's happening as we speak. And there's no plan for this. Hopefully that'll change soon. There are, of course, smart people in government in our various agencies and whatnot. But just in terms of leadership, you could see it anytime Congress calls tech leaders to Fly they out summon them out there hearing. to talk. There seems to be no understanding or even respect for what it is they're talking about. The European Union has the General Data Protections Regulation, mm -hmm. Article 22, that states Europeans have a right to know how an automated decision involving them was reached and a right to know how an automated process is using their personal information. Is this something that you welcome? Well, I, I welcome governments thinking about these things. I don't know if the particular way they've implemented is the best, but at least they're doing something. And we comply with all those. And as far as I can tell so far, there hasn't been any uh, negative repercussions, except we had to do extra work to go comply with them. All of those things are important, but I think something is necessary and society should be engaged. These are important questions. Uh, there's a lot of concern that machines are making decisions instead of people and that there's an inherent bias embedded within algorithms. Mm -hmm. Is this something you encounter in your work? The algorithms that we deal with usually are not probably the ones that you're thinking about there. We're not Facebook or Google, where we're dealing with people's personal information and social media. And so bias to us means something else. It's this car thinks that there's a lane to the left here versus the right, something like that. That being said, I'm actually less worried about machine bias than I'm human bias. Human bias, we definitely know exists, and we know it's really bad. Machines might have bias right now, but we know how to fix that. And we know how to test it, and we know how to measure it. I don't think we know how to fix humans yet, as far as their biases are concerned. I can imagine that sometime in the future, maybe not so far future, we'll have judges and arbitrators that are AIs that make decisions. I trust them to make a decision on a criminal case involving uh, a minority holding up a liquor store or something like that over over most of the judges that are currently in place and and probably do it in a far less biased way. I've heard the example of in a hospital exam room where a machine-assisted healthcare is actually producing the numbers of hospital-acquired infections and mm -hmm. sepsis. I had never heard it on the more moral and weighed 
realm, such as the judicial system. Yeah, I mean, we, we trust humans to be arbiters of things that they probably have no business doing. I'd rather have an algorithm or, or math to decide these things. And what could go wrong? The work that I'm doing is actually to help us solve these problems before they cause harm. Simulation is actually the key to do that. So one of the most direct examples is the simulation we're doing for autonomous vehicles. Before we put these cars out in the road, really sell them to people, we need to make sure that they're going to work well in every possible environment, in every possible situation, with other crazy humans around them, driving around, doing crazy things. There's actually no good ethical way to, to do a lot of the tests you would really like to do. How are you going to be sure that the self-driving car doesn't run over a parent pushing their baby in a baby carriage when they go out into the road without looking both ways, right? You can't test that in real life. We can try to mock it up with some cardboard cutouts of those humans or something like that. <laughs> But it's not the same thing. Yeah, it's scary. And so all this work that we're doing to construct these virtual worlds and do them in real time, that ends up helping us here. We need to put humans inside inside these worlds that we test our cars in and have them drive millions of miles and fool these cars. We're building a a brain for this car that, that perceives the world and decides to act upon it. Our simulators are a virtual reality for those for those car brains. We produce these graphics and pipe those pixels directly into the sensor inputs on the, the computer that's running inside the car. And the car, if we do our job right, doesn't really know the difference between reality and the virtual reality we're giving it. And so if we can simulate it beforehand, the better we can do these simulations, higher fidelity simulations, we have a better chance of averting some of the really tragic things that might happen. We can all imagine what happens if uh, an autonomous vehicle goes awry. But I'd actually argue that we already know what happens when humans go awry. There's plenty of of bad drivers. I'm sure you experienced some of them driving over here earlier. So again, I think in a lot of these realms, best chance is to make algorithms that are less biased and not as flawed as humans. And how might this create a better world? That's a good question in general. What does that mean even, a better world? I think, I think there's some simple metrics of better worlds. We have less babies dying. That, that would be a good thing. People living longer. More people with enough food in their bellies so, so they don't have to worry about it. People getting educated so that they can keep their minds busy. And without technological progress, we wouldn't be where we are today. I know things seem pretty crazy, but it wasn't that long ago that a good portion of our babies used to just die at birth, right? And the mother's along with them. We take it for granted now. Babies are born early, like my sons. They're born weeks early. That would have been a death sentence for them before. But they're they're alive and kicking right now and, and thriving because of technology. Everything that we're doing, there's the dangerous aspect of it. But generally, the world has always gotten better as a result of it. What's exciting for you in terms of new technologies? What do we have to look forward to? Well, uh, in the near term, the things that we were just discussing, that things that I've been working on for the past few decades... Uh, in terms of virtual worlds and computer graphics, I feel like we haven't realized the full potential to them. We've been primarily using them for entertainment, which is great, but we're we're almost there where we're going to start weaving these virtual realities into our daily lives. 40, 50 years ago, the average person didn't have a video camera. The average person barely had a camera. And if they did, it wasn't something that they could use uh, all the time. You had to go get film developed and uh, it was expensive and, and cumbersome. But you look at our children now, 
And they're all videographers, they're all photographers, and they're creating content in worlds themselves. Everybody is. I want to do the same thing for 3D worlds, for virtual worlds. I want to get to the point where my grandchildren, hopefully, hopefully before, but at least my grandchildren are going to be able to construct virtual worlds that are more complex, richer, and more beautiful than what Grand Theft Auto has done or, or what we saw with Avengers Endgame by using whatever device is there or just by speaking. I want to see my grandchild step into a virtual world and say, I want a forest here and a forest appears. I want a stream with a unicorn jumping over this stream. Just describe it and have this world unfold in front of them. Once we get to that point, I can't even imagine the things that people are going to do with it. So that's, that's kind of the thing that gets me, me excited. How can folks get more information about your innovative work? Well, you can definitely go to our webpage and all our social media feeds on uh, nvidia.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter. If you're a developer or into the technology directly, we have developer.nvidia.com where we provide most of the technology I've been speaking about directly for free for people to download and go incorporate into their, into their tools. One of the most interesting things I've ever worked on and my passion right now is a new project that we, we just announced and kind of hinted at about a month or two ago. We call it NVIDIA Omniverse. It's a platform that we're building that allows for a lot of the things that, that I've been talking about here. We want to connect various tools in different domains, whether you're an architect or a product designer or a video game creator or a director for a movie. All of these domains have different tools that they use to describe things that are actually quite similar. They're constructing objects and worlds and scenes. So what we're building is a platform where all of these can come connected together and we can allow people to create these worlds together using the tools that are specific to their domain. Uh, we showed an example of this. We called it the Google Docs of 3D. Just like how you can go edit a spreadsheet with your, with your colleagues or friends simultaneously. We want to provide this, and we are starting to provide this, for people creating 3D worlds. So you and I can be in completely different parts of the globe using our own tools. You might be using a tool uh, to paint textures on, on a model. And I could be using a tool to construct a building using something like Revit from Autodesk, which many architects use. And we could be collaborating together, building these worlds together. So you can go check that out if you search for NVIDIA Omniverse. Uh, we're doing some cool stuff. Thank you so much, Rev. You've been listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. You can find all our podcasts on iTunes University. We'll see you again in two weeks.